Let's pray together. Father, may the meditation of our minds and hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight. And may we hear your voice so that we might live lives by your grace worthy of the gospel we have received. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was one year ago this weekend that we started out on a journey of faith together and mission together and it has brought us places, taken us places that we could never have foreseen. It has led us into blessings that we could never have predicted. Uh, we are celebrating this weekend the amazing mercy of God for an amazing year together. There's, there's hardly a day that goes by when I am not conscious, at, at least for a few minutes, of how amazed I am at God's goodness to me, God's goodness to Gaylene and me, and uh, our lives through Risen Hope Church. It is, it is a daily experience of gratitude and wonder and amazement. And we have, we have only just begun. And I'm reminded of what Paul says to the Philippians, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has begun the good work will complete the good work. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that whenever there is a good work, we may be sure that it will not be easy. And we, we may be sure that it will quickly face opposition. The enemy of our souls will not stand by as the church of Jesus Christ is built and as the kingdom of God's love and God's grace expand and advance in the world. The enemy won't stand by without venting his fury, without exerting counterattacks any which way he can, anywhere he can, in anyone that he can. And so, so it's fitting that as we enter year two, we're in a series of messages on spiritual warfare. As we learn from God's word, teaching as to what to expect from the enemy and how to fight faithfully and how to stand firm ever since. This is... This is the history of the world. Ever since the dawn of time, there has been an enemy of God who has opposed God, who has hated God, who has fought against God, who is so thirsty for blood and thirsty for death and so lustful of having universal cosmic power that that enemy will not stop at anything, he will not stop trying to destroy what God is doing. From the dawn of creation until now, as Jesus said, he is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He loves to kill. He loves to destroy. And he would love to destroy Risen Hope Church and every single one of us who are a part of it. And so as we heard last week, because we still live in an evil day occupied by the evil one, 
We need to stand firm in the fight by abiding in God's strength and putting on his armor. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 is about. If, if we are going to have victory, if we're going to stand firm in this evil day, if we're going to advance the cause of Christ in this generation, we need to abide in God's strength and we need to put on his complete armor. I don't know about you, but as I come to chapter 6 and verse 10, I'm a little bit surprised by what Paul breaks into here. All of a sudden, it seems out of nowhere that he starts talking about spiritual warfare. There's really not a hint of it, or not much of a hint of it any earlier in this letter. He's, he's talking about family, he's talking about work, he's talking about relationships, he's talking about uh, bosses and children and parents and all these things. And then all of a sudden is, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. All of a sudden, it's, he breaks into this teaching about spiritual warfare. And it makes me wonder, why does he do that? Why, why this sudden seeming change of direction? Well, I think it's because of everything that he has said before. Go back to chapter 4 and verse 1. Have your Bibles open here. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Remember what Paul writes here. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been with which you have been called. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you if you love Jesus, Paul says to you, says to me, walk worthy of your calling. You have received an amazing calling, an astonishing privilege, this great gift from God. Now your life is to match the calling. Your life is to measure up to what God has given to you. And then he proceeds to tell us what that life will look like. It will be a life of loving unity. In the next several verses, he talks about how we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It will be a life of moral purity. That's chapter 5 where he says that he doesn't want any sexual immorality to be named among us. And it will be a life of role responsibility where wives and husbands are relating to each other within their roles for the glory of God. Parents and children, bosses and workers. So he says a life worthy of the gospel is marked by these three things. Loving unity, moral purity, and role responsibility. If you are living a life of loving unity and moral purity and role responsibility by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, then you're living a life worthy of the gospel. But I don't know about you, whenever I try to do those things, it is hard. Whenever I try to live in loving unity, when I try to live moral purity, when I try to live in role responsibility, I, I find out that it's a fight. I find out that it's hard. I find out that there, there's an enemy within, there's an enemy all around me, and there is an enemy far bigger than me and greater than me that is fighting me every step of the way. I don't know if you've ever figured this out, but you never know how hard it is to be good until you try. Isn't that right? As long as you're indifferent, if you're just 
one of those people who could care less and you don't even try to be good, you have no idea how hard it is to be good. But as soon as you try to be good, as soon as you try to live in loving unity, as soon as you try to live a life of moral purity, as soon as you try to live a life of role responsibility, you find out it's hard, it's war, it's a fight. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. He's been telling us to live lives of loving unity, live lives of moral purity, live lives of role responsibility. And then he says in chapter 6 and verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, the fight for loving unity, the fight for moral purity. The fight for role responsibility is not just a human thing and a horizontal thing. It is a spiritual thing. There is an enemy fighting back and fighting against us, trying to destroy what God is doing in us. And this morning we need to learn a bit about this enemy. And I'm going to give you from the text uh, five or six facts that are in the enemy's profile. And I'll just run through these quickly. The enemy is differently made. He is destructively accusing. He is diabolically evil. You see where this is going through the D's there. He is deceitfully cunning. He is demonically reinforced. And he is definitely defeated. So, let's go through these. Number one, our enemy is differently made. Notice verse 12, the first part. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, the enemy we have is not human. He's not like us. He's been made different from us. He is superhuman. He is not supernatural. Only God is supernatural. God is above nature above creation, but he is superhuman. He is stronger than we are. He is smarter than we are. He has more knowledge than we have. He has more power than we have. He is a superhuman enemy. And so when you're fighting for loving unity, when you're fighting for moral purity, when you're fighting for role responsibility and you find out it's hard, one of the things you have to realize is that you are, you are fighting against a superhuman strength, a superhuman force that is at work against you. Too often we fail to realize that, don't we? And too often we just think like, oh, maybe if I just kind of improve myself a little bit, or maybe if I just try this trick, or if I try this formula, it might all get better. But the enemy is much more powerful than us, much more shrewd and cunning than us. The enemy will fight back in ways that we in our own strength can never overcome. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, I must never think that my whole problem is confined to that which is within me and in other people. Above and beyond that is there's this other power, mighty power, arrayed against me, the mightiest of all powers apart from God himself. Not to remember this basic fact is to court certain defeat and disaster. The great trouble with the world today and with the church, unfortunately, is that they know so little about the devil and the principalities and powers. 
We are up against a mighty power, the mightiest of all powers except for God himself. He is differently made. Secondly, he is destructively accusing. Notice what he is called in verse 11. He is called the devil. That word devil inter or translates a Greek word which means accuser or slanderer. Satan is called in the book of Revelation the accuser of the brothers. Satan's name, the devil, speaks of his impulse, his strategy, his practice, his dominant tool and weapon against us, which is slander and accusation. Satan loves to accuse. What does that mean? He loves to accuse us before God, saying to the Father like he did to Job. Remember that back in the Old Testament? Job's not as righteous as you think he is, God. Let me just put him to the test. He loves to accuse us through other people. He loves to accuse us through our own consciences. He loves to shame us. He loves to guilt us. He loves to condemn us. He loves when we get so wrapped up in our sins, so wrapped up in our mistakes, so wrapped up in our faults that we live in guilt and we live in shame. He's the ultimate shamer. He is an accuser. This should say something to us, folks, about, about the, the, the nature of the enemy and the nature of shame and guilt. This is the enemy's name, accuser. His business is to make you feel guilty. That must mean that guilt and shame have a way of crippling believers, have a way of destroying our faith, have a way of destroying our walk with God, our engagement in the mission of the gospel. If the enemy gives so much of his energy to bring shame into our lives, it must be because shame is particularly destructive. And so we, let me just say this now, let me make sure you hear this now. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why we need to know who can bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who can accuse the brethren? It is Christ who died who rose from the dead, who has ascended as Lord, who intercedes for us before the Father. You know what that's saying, Romans chapter 8? It's saying that there is no one in the entire universe that can accuse you of guilt that will lead to your condemnation. Because the highest judge in the universe, God himself, has already pronounced you justified, has already pronounced you acquitted, has already pronounced you forgiven, has already pronounced you fully accepted in the sight of God. Nobody in the galaxies can condemn you. Not even God can. Because he has already given us his word. That if we believe in his son, Jesus Christ, we will be forgiven of every sin. And there is no condemnation. None. None for those who are in Christ. So as we think about the enemy as our accuser, that which is his primary weapon, 
accusation, slander, guilt, and shame. Let's make sure to think about the gospel, which is God's primary weapon to defend us against the accuser's lie. We have an enemy, yes, and he is an accuser. He is a destructively accusing enemy, but he is overcome by the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, our enemy is diabolically evil. Diabolically evil. He is called in another place the evil one. He is said here to command spiritual forces of evil. And so much so that Paul says we live in an evil day. So our enemy is evil. He is all about sin. Wherever there is evil, wherever there is sin, you can be sure that Satan has been there. Satan has had something to do with it. I, I need to pause here, because I know that I'm introducing concepts that for some of you are very unfamiliar and uh, may need some explanation, especially in our day and in our age. I'm, I'm talking about evil, I'm talking about sin, I'm talking about an evil one, and, and the current generation in which we live in this part of the world has been raised to believe that there is no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. Everything's relative, right? You kind of decide your own right and wrong. You kind of chart your own path, and there are, there are no absolutes. So the idea of evil, which is intense wrong, uh, is something that maybe doesn't quite settle in your mind. And as I thought about this week, I, it, it, it occurred to me that one of, the, one of the reasons why people really want to deny that there is right and wrong is because if they admit that there is right and wrong, that there are moral laws in the universe, then they're going to have to admit that there is a moral creator who put them there. And that's the rub. That's the problem. People don't want to go there. And so, in order to deny right and wrong so they can live by their own rules, they deny the Creator. But the problem with people is, is that we, we can't do that consistently, can we? We say we don't believe in right and wrong, but then we turn right around and we try to make other people live by a standard of right and wrong. Isn't that right? I mean, if somebody offends you and wrongs you, you don't say, ah, well, that was, their, that was their preference. You know, you know, to each his own, you know. He stepped on my toe on purpose. You know, he punched me in the face on purpose. But you know, he just felt like doing it. You got to give everything up. As soon as that happens, you know, a wrong has been done. It's interesting how we don't believe in right and wrong until somebody wrongs us. And then all of a sudden, there's an absolute there. All of a sudden, we get conviction. All of a sudden, we believe in right and wrong. And it's even somewhat amusing that there are many people in our world today, in our culture today, who say they don't believe in right and wrong, and yet turn right around and crusade for moral causes. Fascinating. They don't believe in right and wrong, but don't hurt the baby seals. They don't, they don't believe in right and wrong, but it's 
wrong for you to believe in right and wrong. You see where this goes? It's, it's kind of a funny thing. And it, it just reflects the fact that down deep inside, we all know there's right and wrong. Down deep inside, there's been a moral code that's been written into our conscience. That the moral lawgiver, the creator of heaven and earth, has put there. You can't escape it. You can try to hide it. You can try to stuff it. You can try to deny it. You can try to suppress it. But the pesky thing just keeps resurfacing. And there are moments where we realize either somebody has wronged us or we have wronged others. There is, there is such a thing as wrong, and we know there's such a thing as wrong. And that means, friends, there is a God who declares what is right and wrong. If we can't say, because God said so, then we have no right to say, I say so. God says, this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is evil. And God is to be obeyed and God's authority is to be recognized in our lives. But there is an evil one. There is this one called Satan who hates God and hates what is right and loves what is wrong. And so he makes it his business day after day, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia. He makes it his business to inspire and incite as much evil as he can in our hearts and in our world. This is the enemy we have. He is diabolically evil. But more than that, the enemy is deceitfully cunning. Deceitfully cunning. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word scheme refers to trickery. It refers to deceit, deceitful strategies and lies. The Satan, Satan is by his very nature a deceiver and a liar. John 8, Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. It is said of the devil that he was the serpent who deceived Eve. Paul says that he disguises himself as a, an angel of light. Revelation says he's the deceiver of the whole world. He's a liar. Never trust a temptation. Never trust the temptation. Whenever you're being tempted to do something you know God says not to, or to not do something God says to do, and somehow or other it feels like the right thing to do, you need to understand that you've just bought a lie. You've just been lied to. This is how the enemy works. He promises that in a certain sin, there will be a certain happiness. He promises that this particular sin is, is justified in this particular set of circumstances. He, he promises that this will lead to lasting meaning and lasting happiness, even though if you take a step back from it, you know it is only momentary pleasure and momentary fun. But our enemy knows how to do this, and he knows how to deceive us. He knows how to bait the hook. He knows, he knows how to make us think 
that good is bad and bad is good and, and, and foolish is wise and wise is foolish. He knows how to, to sneak it. He knows how to scheme it. He is deceitfully cunning. But I do want you to know that he is not infinitely wise. And he is not all-known. And in fact, he is so deceitful that he deceives himself. It's already been referenced this morning. Somebody stole a bit of my thunder, but I'll forgive Matt for doing it. Oh, Matthew, are you here Matt made the point earlier that the enemy thought he was winning when he put it into, into Judas's heart to betray Christ. The enemy thought he was winning when he blinded the people with rage. The enemy thought he was winning when he blinded the Roman soldiers in Pilate who led Jesus up Golgotha. The enemy thought he was winning when he inspired the soldiers to drive the stakes into the hands and the feet of Jesus. He, the enemy thought he was winning when Jesus was put in the tomb. The enemy had no idea that he was playing right into God's plan. The enemy deceived himself, actually thought he could beat God, actually thought he could outwit God, actually thought he had a plan, a scheme, so great, so perfect, that this would spell the doom of the kingdom of God and he would be top rank in the universe. What a fool, a, a, a knowledgeable fool, but a self-deceived enemy we have. Oh, let us take comfort. He is a deceitfully cunning enemy, and so we should be on guard. But he isn't God. And he isn't infinitely wise. He doesn't know all things. And so he loses in the end, even when he thinks he wins. So who is the enemy that we have? He's all that we've said. And then quickly, he is demonically reinforced. Look at verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These verses speak of a whole army of spiritual forces that are bent to do the devil's will. There is, there is a whole host of demons and evil spirits. And again, I realize that this flies right in the face of contemporary thought and so-called enlightenment and all the rest, but hey, it just is the way it is. What you see is not all that is. There is in this universe a realm behind, beneath, around all that happens on planet Earth, an unseen realm of angels and these demons and cosmic powers and forces some of which are good and some of which are evil. And, and in this realm, there are ranks and rulers and dominions and principalities and powers. I don't know how all that works together, but there is an organized resistance to God. And there is an organized host of heaven that do the will of God and serve the kingdom of God and protect the people of God 
in the midst of this fight against God. There, this is going on. And this fighting that's going on is, is not a, just a fight between the angels and the demons. It really is a fight for us. It is a fight over us. It's a fight about us. The enemy is trying to take us down with him. The enemy is trying to take us into hell with him. And the hosts of heaven, under the commander of the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, the host of heaven, is fighting for us and fighting with us. This is all going on. He is, our God is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies. And there are hosts of angels over which he is Lord. Don't get this wrong. We're not uh, Hindu or dualist in our thinking. We don't believe in yin and yang, that there are these opposite equal forces somehow or other balancing each other out in the universe. There are two forces, God's and the enemy's, but they're not equal. They're not equal. For one of these forces, one of these armies, as a commander-in-chief that stands higher and stronger and mightier and more with more valor and more love than all the enemy forces put together. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our last point. Our enemy is definitely defeated. So here are the, here are the points. Differently made. Destructively accusing, diabolically evil, deceitfully cunning, demonically reinforced, and definitely, definitely defeated. Definitely defeated. We can't read Ephesians 6 without making sure to reread Ephesians 1. Go back to Ephesians 1 and notice what Paul has already told us beginning in verse 19. Paul is praying that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above. Notice this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are talking about the spiritual forces. Those are talking about the demons and the angels. And Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This is Jesus Christ. This is the commander of the Lord's army. This is the captain of our souls. This is the one who rules. This is the one who is in the highest place. He said just before he went up to heaven, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Romans, or Revelation 11, the kingdom of our Lord of this world and of our Lord has been given to Jesus Christ. God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The cosmos belongs to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. 
We have an enemy stronger than us and mightier than us and more cunning than us. But he doesn't even begin to compare to that one who has been exalted to the highest place. That one who is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. That one who has been seated on the highest throne. That wonder, one who is the commander of the Lord's armies. That one who leads us into battle. That one who has put all things under his feet. It is done, we have sung. It is finished, we have sung. And that means that while there are still battles that go on every day of our life, the war is won. The war is won. Satan is already defeated. Yeah, he's trying to take us down with him, but he is a defeated enemy who's under the foot, under the heel of Jesus Christ. He is a crushed enemy. Folks, this is what we need to go home with. What we need to go home with. Two things. And then I close. One, we need to go home aware that if we are having a hard time with loving unity, if we're having a hard time with moral purity, if we're having a hard time with role responsibility, it isn't just because we're weak, it's because we're up against the mighty foe. You know, the next time you have an argument with your wife or your husband, understand this. Your primary concern should not be with your spouse. They're not Germany. The devil wants you to think that they're your enemy, but they're not Germany. He's your enemy. He's your enemy. He's just using you and your spouse to get at each other and take each other down. We need to be much more conscious that we have an enemy who is always at work, as Peter puts it, like a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. He always has his eyes open, scheming how somehow to take us down and destroy us. It serves our souls well to realize who the real enemy is in our lives, so that we don't fight battles we don't need to fight. And we don't fight people we shouldn't fight. Let's fight him. Let's fight him. But here's the second thing that I want us to go home with. Live in faith, not fear. Live in faith, not fear. We have an enemy far stronger than us. We have an enemy not flesh and blood. We have an enemy who is deceitfully cunning, who is diabolically evil, who is demonically reinforced. But live in faith, not fear. Live in faith, not fear. Why? Because the scriptures tell us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God and you will be able to stand firm in this evil day. The scriptures tell us, 1 John, greater is he, you know the verse, right? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. James 4, resist the devil. And what will he do? He will flee from you. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. So let us live our lives with our eyes on the throne. Let us live our eyes crowning him with many crowns. Let's live our, uh, live our lives knowing that the commander of the Lord of hosts, the, the commander of the king's army is our savior, is our God. Let us live knowing Jesus is Lord and everyone else who wants to be a contender is just a pretender, has no claim, no ability to dethrone Jesus Christ. And let us realize that we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And nothing can separate us from the Father's love. Not principalities or powers, Romans 8 says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us live in the good of the gospel. Let us live in the wonder of knowing that our God reigns, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and as one person has said it, that means that every square inch of the cosmos, he says over it, it's mine. It's mine. In every square and round inch of our lives, it's his. And every temptation, we have grace to conquer. In every fight, we have strength to fight. And there is victory. There is victory in Jesus. We want to close in singing and worship. We want to close crowning him with many crowns. And we've, we've added a stanza to this hymn for the morning. Crown him the Lord of hosts, the captain of our souls, who quiets all the devil's boasts, Hell's death his kingdom tolls. No scheme or cunning lie can cause the church to fall. For high above both earth and sky, he is the Lord of all. Let's stand together and let's sing and crown Christ as Lord of all.